Welcome to episode 474 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a very insightful, compelling conversation with Judge Abby Abenanti. We talk with her from her place in Northern California and discuss her story, the invasion, the Yurok tribe, melting pot being a bad idea, giving up one's culture and history, shared values, developing creeds to justify injustice, languages of action versus things, missing and murdered indigenous women, being the target, and where we go from here. A grand conversation with Judge Abby Abenanti. We have an EWSA titled Tail Feather. We share an excerpt from Tony Jensen's book, Carrie, a memoir of survival on stolen land. We have a poem called New Weather, and all of this will be infused, imbued with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us, and it is so nice to be with you. Let's get to it. Episode 474 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours.
feather. Sage water rolls over me from the sky. I am good by nature, though as most I like to dance with the darkness too. Is it a part of it all? Is it fear and the allure of the taboo? The sun peeked through the cloud cover for several wondrous moments the other day one during the last full week of May. I basked in the warm chill of the spring-fall breeze. I heard a neighbor nearby sneeze. I turned to see which direction she was with respect to me. There are pink and orange flower bushes blooming, wind chimes echo and birds sing. There is enlightenment and happiness all around us. Alongside emptiness, pain, and discontent, as the history books as well as oral tales tell of stories both fictitious and deep, I wonder about what we know and what we learn. The ideal of justice True examples of integrity, verve, meaning what is said, hearing what you heard, the strength of one's soul and courage of heart, indigenous here and immigrant there, borders and boundaries supported by foundations built on economic principle and hunger toward the high reaches of big blue sky heaven. As the great spirit breathes into each of us a life, like a morning mist just above the green treetops, eventually nourishing the ground through the earth, Turtle Island, Pangea, rivers, rock, lava, and the way we walk, crawl, run, cry, laugh, talk, sing, sleep, look up, within, down, into each other's eyes, feeling and knowing somehow, somewhere, now, and forever.
this Judge Abby Abenanti? This is Abby. Yes, it is. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thank you. And uh, before we get started, I'd like to share a little background information for our listeners. Abby Abenanti is an enrolled member of the Yurok Tribe. She has been Chief Justice of the Yurok Tribe since 2007. She grew up on the Yurok Indian Reservation located in parts of Del Norte and Humboldt Counties, California on a 44-mile stretch of the Klamath River. She initially studied journalism at Humboldt State University, but then decided to enroll at the University of New Mexico School of Law. She was particularly interested in the field of Indian law and later specialized in family court proceedings and juvenile dependency due in large part to the Indian Child Welfare Act 1978. Abby Abignanti is California's first Native American female lawyer and is the first Native American female to be appointed to a state judicial position. She served as a San Francisco Superior Court Commissioner for approximately 20 years. During the course of her legal career, Judge Abignanti developed the first tribal program to help members with the expungement process. Troubadours and Rakan Tours is proud to have on the program Judge Abby Abignanti. How are you, Judge? I'm fine, thank you. Um, again, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to talk with us. And uh, let's get right into it. How, how about you share a little bit about your journey to where you are today? All right, I'm not sure what would be of interest, but um, I did grow up in Northern California and mostly in our Aboriginal territory. During the time I was growing up, the uh, reservation, the tribe had not been recognized by the federal government, um, but we all lived in that sort of that area. It was a difficult time for um, tribal people in terms of their relationship with those who had came during the course of the invasion. Um, we had many struggles, and that made sort of our approach, I think, a little bit different. I didn't actually 
Well, I guess in some ways I did choose to go to law school, but it was really a matter of elders in the community getting together, uh, women, and saying it would really be nice if you went to law school. And I'm like, I don't want to go to law school. I never thought about it. And they eventually said, well, you have to go because you're the only one graduating and we need a lawyer. So that's how I went to law school. So it's it's a much different process, I think, than what a lot of people might have engaged in. Yeah, it, it was your community asking you to serve them, basically. Well, asking is a nice word for it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll yeah. have to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you say... Uh, because of the invasion, I, 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 I believe you mean, you know, the um, European invasion of this continent. Well, yeah, that's what I was referring to. You know, it was different um, when, you know, individuals would come and visit and those kinds of things would be passing through. But once things like the gold rush, the timber rush, the fish rush, all those things happened, uh, then it got way out of control. Yeah, uh, I mean, the the way, it's hard for me to understand totally, and I don't want to minimize it, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm European-American. Uh, a lot of folks that are, I don't believe, understand or know uh, what history you're talking about, and it's good that, you, you, you know, you identify it. Um, now, that brings me to another question, uh, you know, the United States of America. Where, where where do we come from, in your view, and, and where are we going? Well, you know, in terms of where you came from, I think people came here seeking a better life for the most part. Many of them came on the run. Many of them came uh, because they had no choices. Uh, certain populations uh, were themselves kidnapped from their homes and brought here to assist in the effort, primarily the economic effort that was going on to take over the country. And I think a lot of choices were made. I mean, a, sort of a key choice, everybody's heard about the concept of the melting pot. You come here and you essentially are melted into this whole new whatever it is. But I, for one, think that was probably a bad idea because everybody who came from other places had thousands of years of history behind them and a culture and having to give that up to be here I don't think in the end was a really good idea because I think those values and why we got along with people before that time who came to visit is because we did have a lot of shared values and we did have okay this is how you behave in community and then all of a sudden it was all different right right so basically that's where we're coming from and 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 where is that leading us I, I it seems to me you don't believe it has led us or is leading us in a, in a good way and a good direction well I think you know there's been a lot of you look at the country now you look at where we are in terms of so many things disparities climate um, you know we have so many children going to bed hungry we have so many people incarcerated more than any other you know, country in the world, we have all these issues, and you go, wow, wait, this is not a good idea. And so, you know, from our standpoint, we're looking back and going, okay, we ran and hid to avoid more contact with you people, and that helped us, because then we survived. But at this point, 
we have to look around us and say, you know, we're not meeting our responsibilities to place to each other and even to the those who came because we managed this area for this country essentially for thousands of years and in a couple of hundred years the people who have come have pretty much brought us to the brink of ruin and we need to come back out and say look this might be a better way of doing it let's do it this way let's try this let's be in community more let's not go okay it's alright if I go to bed with a full stomach but who cares about the kid next door you know that's not okay no no I agree and when you uh, when you look at the numbers let's just talk about numbers uh, there are various uh, numbers cited uh, by historians uh, regarding the number of people that were here before you know pre-contact uh, before Europeans came uh, most of the time, the you know, history books written by Europeans really minimize the number uh, as compared to people who are from the indigenous population. As you know, what they view what was the number. What do you think about it? Are, were there many more people on this continent than is usually cited? I'm not sure, Lawrence, what you're trying to um, suggest here. I'm not that old. I wasn't actually here. <laughs> Let me just say. No. But I'm... I do think <laughs> how, how very cruel of you, Lawrence. I do think there were a, a lot of people here. How many, I don't know. You know, and the, and the question is really not how many so much, but how and what happened to them and why. And was this really a good idea for anybody? Because the doing evil, you know, against somebody affects them and it affects the person who doesn't, mm -hmm. you know. And then you develop a creed or a, an approach that goes, oh, it's okay if I kill these people and take their land. Well, actually, it's not okay, you know. And when you become that and act that out, uh, it's not a good basis to stand on. No. No, I, I, I guess... Uh... The reason I mentioned the number is because it's just, uh, again, it's minimizing, you know, what was here, who was here, and, and, and that, I think, is an issue. And to, to speak, based on my limited understanding, you know, the rationale always is, uh, well, these people aren't really people, you know, they're, they're savages, that, so it's okay, you know, we'll either teach them to be right, quote unquote, or, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get rid of them. As troubling as that sounds, I think that is the history, right? That's pretty much the history. I mean, you know, depending on the area, you know, in California, we had probably more massacres than any other state. And there was a lot of very poor behavior justified by economic gain, you know, and that has gone on and on and on. And this country is plagued by that nightmare, you know, and continues to be plagued by that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So... Your motivation then to do what you do, I mean, you do so much for the community at large, um, in particular, the, I guess, the community you were born and raised in. Um, what, your motivation and your, your, your inspiration comes from, comes, I guess, justice, right? It is the, the law. Is it also um, sort of being a voice for, for your, your 
your history, the, the, the people that you are directly linked to? Do you see it you larger know, than that? I don't, I don't know. You know, you have two sort of distinct ways of, of being in the world. The, this country has evolved into a, a system of rights, rights-based this, rights-based that. And we were uh, a very responsibility-based culture and still are. So our practices are very different than a rights-based practice because I look around me and go, okay, I'm responsible for all of this. And if I don't take care of the rivers and the fish die, who came here to feed us, then I am not meeting my responsibility. You know, and so that's that makes it way different. You know, and even in, in criminal matters or offenses against the community, you go, you know, at first people would go, well, wait a second. You know, we, you, there's an expectation that we'll have a trial and then we'll prove whether they did it. And I said, you know, that's not our way. That's the way of the people who came here. Our way is I will ask you if you did it and you will tell me if you did it. And then if you did, then we will figure out how to fix it together. Because that's what I'm here to do is help you do the right thing. And if you want, we can have a trial. But if you'd rather just talk to me, we can do that. And probably 98% of the people that come before us would say, oh, uh, let me just talk to you. Here's what, here's what happened. Here's what we did. Here's why we did it. Okay, well, then let's see what we need to do to make this right. What level of uh, offenses or what types of offenses uh, are, you, are you talking about? Primarily, we deal with what would be known as misdemeanors, although we are diverting people out of the criminal law system because our approach is much more effective than the state approach. And some of the local judges would rather have us deal with it because we put a lot of time and effort into our work so that people are assigned as advocates. And we train our advocates and uncles to be culturally like aunts and uncles who had a lot of responsibility for, I don't know, behavior management, I guess would be the best way to say it, and going, okay, you're not going to do that anymore, or this is, that wasn't okay. You've got to correct this. How are you going to fix this? And then helping them, you know, oh, you need your record cleaned up. Oh, you need a job. Let me give you a ride. Do you, you know, do you need to put in job applications? And on and on, just like somebody in your family would do. Um, and that's what, what we do is we recreate that safety net and that assistance, you know, until they're strong enough to go and and do it. And, the, you know, they, they will come back and often say, you know, well, Judge Abby, we, we need you to help us do this or whatever. And I'm so that's fine. Come back. We'll, we'll help you do that. You know, and it really encourages people who have issues to seek help because that's what you really want to do. You don't want to drive people to the edge of distraction before they get help. It's not like a lot of people don't realize that they need help. And is this like a separate from uh, the legal system that is in place uh, for, I guess, anybody who's not indigenous because of federal laws that sort of carve out uh, a separate system for, for indigenous people? We, yeah, we have a separate court system and we have a very active wellness component of that that goes into every area. And we have all sorts of programs in our court 
You know, we basically have, we're the largest surviving tribe in the state. We have 6,000 plus members. And when I first came home to help run the court, we had two people. I think I was the third. And now we have close to 60 and, and we have openings for more. You know, and most of those people are on the ground interacting with people who need assistance. And this is the Yurok tribe you're talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, is is the language and the culture largely intact still? The language is making a terrific comeback because it was sort of uh, put um, in a place where we really didn't speak it. I don't speak it. I've taken, some, you know, I, I speak phrases here and there, but that's it. So I grew up in a time when, when we didn't have the language. Um, and and that's hard. As far as the culture, when I was young, some time ago, which we've already discussed, <laughs> um, the dances started coming back because there was a period of time when they were outlawed. We weren't allowed to have our ceremonies. And then uh, the ceremonies have come back because the elders essentially hid the regalia and buried the dance sites. And now they've come back and they're they're stronger and stronger all the time. Now, COVID has been difficult because you couldn't have those ceremonies during this period. Yeah, you know, I, I um, am a native of Pennsylvania, and you know about the terrible school that was here, Western Pennsylvania, Carlisle, I'm right. sure. Uh, and that was all about uh, pulling young people away from their elders and, and re-educating them, quote-unquote, not allowing them to speak the language uh, of, of their ancestors or to uh, remember or to uh, practice any of the culture that comes from their ancestors. Horrible, really. Um, um, and I guess that's what you're talking about, it was what you had to deal with up in your neck of the woods, too. It was uh, horrible for them, and it was horrible for the people who did it, because that that was premised on them forgetting their own cultures, their own languages. And I think there would be a lot less discord if that had not occurred for them and for us. Because uh, being an abuser diminishes you or because you're losing a lot of what you know, the opportunity to learn and, and from other people's experiences? I think, you know, that if you look at the cultures that came here, where they came from, those cultures were very old and their belief systems were closer, frankly, to ours than the belief system that is in this country. And once you got taken over by the desire to make money for certain people and making that okay to hurt a whole bunch of other people in the process, that's really tripped up a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my people, are, I'm first generation myself, my family, mother and father, both from southern Italy, very poor, mm-hmm. rural, very communal. And uh, right. I, I've been there a few times. It's beautiful. But uh-huh. it, it, here, the same... Uh, lifestyle that I witnessed there that I think is beautiful is looked at as backward, you know. Right. So I think I know what you're talking about to a certain extent. Uh, talking to Judge Abby Abenanti, and uh, this is great. This is so much. Uh, this is very. Uh, I, thank you. I, I really appreciate it. Now, um, is, is there a salutation from uh, the the uh, language of your your tribe that you could? Let us hear a common hello or something to that effect. Yeah, Ayukwe is pretty common greeting. 
and it's basically saying hello. And as you, if you drag out the last syllable, I-U-Q-U-I, that widens the the expression into one of caring for the person you're talking to and that in return. You know, we're, we're a language of, of action as opposed to things. Uh, so we had a lot more words that would cover actions. So English is a word of things uh, as opposed to actions. I mean... I think I understand that. When you say uh, actions as, a, as, as compared to or versus uh, things, um, that, that, I guess, speaks to philosophy almost, doesn't it? Right. Right, it's a different approach. Yeah, yeah, um, and um, how how much faith do you have in in the legal system that you're a part of? Well, you know, I, I'm about setting up an infrastructure for us that is way different than the one that I spent a lot of time in. I think if you look at it, it's not working very well for the country. It's not very effective, um, and I think it needs to be changed, you know, and a lot of people are working to try to do that. We're doing our little corner of it and trying to say, here's a better option. Here's a better way of doing it. Maybe you want to do how we're doing it. Maybe you want to have the person be in community more. Uh, maybe you want to assist them and not make it impossible for them to reenter. Maybe you don't want to put them in jail and not let them talk to their children, you know, because that makes it harder on their children. It makes it harder on them. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, how how accurate is the uh, notion, the stories that are uh, put out there about reservations, and the the the, the trouble, the the um, dysfunction, if you will, uh, on, on uh, reservations? Well, I think you know there's. Poverty brings a lot of issues, and we became, when we were locked in without our resources or ability to have resources, and then problems were imported. I mean, just like even the latest opioid mess, you know, those addicts predominantly were created by Indian Health Service dispensing this medicine to people on the reservation, you know, over and over and over this kind of thing happens and we're targeted and it's not um, being you know being the the target is hard would, and would, does that create issues totally it creates issues it's horrible you know and then we have to figure out how to deal with those issues um, and that's our becomes our responsibility however it is not our fault in terms of how they were created but it is now our responsibility to deal with it when you say targeted, what do you, what do you mean? I mean, if you have a system that is dispensing drugs from a family who has no has taken no responsibility and who the system allows to take no responsibility except pour money into it, that's a problem. I'm, <clears throat> the system is giving drugs. Are you talking about like? Um, uh, Methadone, that sort of thing, or are you talking? No, I'm talking about opioids. So this is, a, this is an example of the pharmaceutical sort of uh, system that is allowing for prescribing or producing. No, the, I mean the Sackler family created opioids. 
they dispense it. They know that this is a murderous weapon, but they keep dispensing it over and over and over. We have one source of health care on the reservation. It's Indian Health Service. And if you check the various lawsuits that tribes are involved with, with opioids and check how many prescriptions were provided in these communities, there are tremendous numbers, which is how the Sacklers ended up getting sued. Okay, so now they're sued, and at you know they'll probably go into settlement. They've hidden behind bankruptcy. Not one person among them will spend five seconds in any kind of incarceration. They will have to spend some of their billions to um, resolving these cases. And that's all. Excuse my ignorance, but you're you're making reference to something that I don't understand. That the sack, the sack, uh, I can't even. The Sackler family uh-huh. owned the company. That I mean, they're they're being widely sued. That created the opioids. Yeah, my ignorance. I'm sorry. I didn't realize that there was one family behind it predominantly. Yeah. Um. Now there's another issue. Uh, Missing women, right? Uh, you know, d- indigenous women. You know, uh, less than one percent of the national population. Ten times the amount, uh, uh, fa- by a factor of ten, more indigenous women are murdered or missing. Is my understanding? Well, you want to talk about that at all? I think you know that that leaves tremendous pain in the communities. You know, we've done in the last couple of years a, a lot of work on um, data collection and trying to figure out how to curb the problem. You know, and the whole issue of murdered and missing has been underplayed and under-responded to, and we we need to respond to it. And we've now created in the last two years a couple of reports, and it's really about data collection and trying to then devise a policy to address the issue. Um, California's fifth in the nation, and 60% of those come from the north, which is where we are. Uh, and we have a number of murdered and missing women that we're, uh, you know, that we have, we have to try to resolve this problem. Resolve it by finding those people, uh, by trying to resolve the cold cases, and then work on prevention. Why is it happening? Is it, I mean, is it happening, uh, is it domestic or is it outsiders? It's a lot of it. Uh, we have the highest outsider sort of attacking issues of, of any population. And I think it's just historically people have been able to get away with that. You know, and it becomes a um, sort of a no harm, no foul. You know, I saw a movie, I don't know how accurate it is, I, I believe it's based on uh, what is occurring in, in this context, called Wind River. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know that movie? Mm-hmm. And it, it showed me that a lot of times it's workers, you know, from the, the oil industry or things like that, uh, that come into a, an area and, and they, they are the perpetrators of this, these sorts of crimes. Is that, is that your, your take on it too? That that can be that can cause the crime rate to go up in that area. Yeah, the the man camps that are not um, appropriately supervised. Uh, go go on. <laughs> All right, and 
that creates huge problems. You know, there's a great book. I had this uh, guest on um, a few months ago, Tony Jensen, uh, and she wrote a book called Carrie, a memoir of survival on stolen land. And and her background is, you know, um, part European and part uh, indigenous from up in, in Canada. Uh, and And talking with her and reading her book, which is a brilliant book, you, you know, if you like to read and you have time, I'm sure you do like to read, uh, I would check it out, uh, Carrie, C-A-R-R-Y, and Jensen, J-E-N-S-E-N, anybody listening. Um, she, everything that you're saying to me is pretty much what, what she has experienced too. And, and what was interesting to me is the struggle that she has as being a person who has both histories. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I don't know if that's you as well. Um, do you have, are you, do you have any European history in you as well? I mean, genetically, I guess I'm, I'm trying to say, or, or, yeah, my, my, um, mother and her sisters during World War II came to San Francisco and married guys down here and then basically moved home. And so my father, um, was Sicilian. Ah, that's your name. That's why I thought your name sounded Italian to me. Yeah. Yeah. And. I think a lot of people are are in that situation, you know. That's a tough one, isn't it? I mean, that's our country in in many regards. You know, even when you look at African-American brothers and sisters, same deal. You know, their ancestors were also perpetrators of the crimes that they're struggling with to this day. You know, I think, to me, it's sort of like what you were saying about the villages in southern Italy. You know, I believe my grandfather on that side um, came here, jumped ship when he was 12 years old. um, And their ways were probably much closer to the ways of my mother's people than others, you know. Yeah. So that I don't really feel the strife myself. You know, and I, and I, to me, it's like, okay, I'm going to take the responsibility that, that I grew up with, that I know, that I understand, and they're not really in conflict. Do sometimes people do wrong things? Sure. Like my mother's father, for instance. I mean, I was talking to a group of young people at graduation last week, and I said, you know, essentially our role is to be, as you leave this graduation, is to go out and for you to become a good ancestor. And I do realize that we have ancestors that are problematic. For instance, my grandfather, my mother's father, went to work one day and didn't come home. What was his work? He was a bank robber. Now, that's kind of problematic. Yeah, I suppose. Uh... And managed to get himself shot in the course of his you know, day at work. Yeah, our history, our history, everyone's history is so complicated if you really understood it. And I think that's part of the problem is a lot of us don't, you know. Um, if we did, maybe we'd be more empathetic and, and see the connection we all have to one another. Yeah, I mean, I see, you know, why he did it and what he did. And uh, all things considered, you know, he made that decision. I could have, I guess, grown up to be a bank robber, but instead I grew up to be this, you know. And you do have choices, and you have to make them. And the more informed they are, the better. So from from this point on, we're just about done with this conversation. I'd love to talk with you again. 25 minutes or so, 30 minutes is not enough time. 
Well, if, where where do you go from here as an individual, and where do you think we're going uh, as a nation? I think people need to choose what they, you know, there's sort of the everyday things that you go, no, I'm not going to join in that action, and then what am I going to do with the, with the time I have here? What is my purpose? You know, and we believe that you come in with a purpose. I think this is my purpose to help set up an infrastructure to try to work with the people in the counties, not just the tribal people where I come from, and go, look, let's try this because this works better. Let's do it this way. Let's, you know, do this. I mean, even our court, you know, we have a cultural officer, and one of the things the officer does is takes a play to elementary school with a theater group that talks about <coughs> Yurok law and responsibility. And then the kids make a puppet show, and then we provide a dinner. Nice. Because it presents a different way of being. Because the purpose of the play is to teach people that they have a responsibility, sometimes to ask for help, sometimes to receive help, and what do you do when you don't get the help you ask for? You know, and so it's just sharing those messages are important. I, yes, I, I definitely valuable. It's just for me personally, um, I, I get overwhelmed by the monolithic culture that I uh, am totally uh, surrounded by, part of, uh, but I don't necessarily agree with. And I know it, it influences me and everyone around me to the point of not being aware of any op, uh, you know, alternatives. Well, I uh, think you do have alternatives. I think, you know, what we the first thing we learn is that you know, I can't make you do anything, um, but I have responsibility for how I act. You know, and sometimes when I was a state court judge, we would come to a place where they would go, well, you have to do this. And I would say, no, I don't. You know, because I wasn't raised to it and I won't do it. And I think as you go through your daily life, you can do that because you do have total control over that part of it, what you're going to do you know, how you're going to interact with people. Um, I'm going to spend my time working with this group of people to help them, you know, whatever. I think you do have a lot of control. And, and it is, you know, and if we do the, each do our part, then it can switch. Beautifully stated. Judge Abby Abenanti, thank you so much for taking time out to be on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And I, I would love to talk with you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. All right. Well, you know how to find me now. <laughs> I do. Thank you. All right. Take, Take care. You too. Oh, oh, oh. 
let you go to the stars and the sky you'll always be mommy's little guy hey oh 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 hey And now an excerpt from Tony Jensen's book titled Carrie, a memoir of survival on stolen land. In the backyard of this summer, my nephew is with his half-brother at an uncle's house in a wealthy suburb of Denver. These young men are many things. My nephew is a biology student, is Matisse, and Irish, and French, and African-American, is seldom found in his natural habitat without his laptop and its intricate online world of fantasy games. His brother is a high school student, is of similar descent, minus the Matisse, is interested in basketball and travel and the outdoors. But in the language of this, our America, in this, our summer of guns, they are black. They are black boys by a private lake. Never mind they are here to fish or holding fishing poles. Never mind they've been invited. The day passes into late afternoon when the baby monitor the uncle has been holding erupts with the sounds of the younger inside children awaking from their naps. He goes to tend them, leaving my nephew and his brother alone to fish. When the neighbor sees them there at the edge of her manicured lawn, waterside, she goes into her house and brings down her gun. She crosses the space of the lawn with it in front of her body in the position we refer to as drawn. As in, how is the scene drawn? Is the light just right? How is the timber of her voice when she demands to know who they are and what they think they are doing, these boys? Who the F are they? Who the F? Who the F? David, the brother, keeps repeating his name. I'm David, he says. I'm David. His voice. His voice. I don't know how to report this. I don't. My nephew stands next to him, silent. Here is the thing about my sister's children, my nephew and my niece. 
If my sister's and my childhood is of B-grade family saga variety, her children's includes moments that rival a horror movie. The children's father behaves as if he were a minor cult leader. Their childhood featured all the requisite trauma you can imagine, and some you can't. The curtains in their house were drawn against daylight, against prying eyes, because the world was going to end and their enemies lurked, and don't tell anyone what goes on inside this house, or the bad men will come, and the bad men will take you away. But the bad men, of course, were already inside. It is the truth of this violence we call domestic that the bad men already are inside. In the backyard, near the woman and her gun, where the uncle has abandoned it, the baby monitor comes alive. Webster's defines its crackle and hum as salvation. The uncle hears David repeating his name. Here's the woman, her who the Fs. The uncle, though white and of privilege, he loves these boys. He shouts down his neighbor from inside the house. He leaves the house and crosses through the double doors. He crosses the lawn under the late afternoon sky at a run. No one calls the police after. Headline after headline delivers the stories of black men and teens and boys falsely arrested by police, shot by police, killed by police. If quantifying helps makes this clear, statistician Patrick Ball, in his report in Granta, found that police are responsible for almost a third of all homicides committed by strangers. I am interested in the socio-political, familial, and geographic boundaries of this story, of our language, of our storytelling. If the lake is adjacent to but not located in the uncle's backyard, is this considered a domestic space? How close does a relative have to be in order for a crime to be domestic? Does a domestic violence bullet enter the body and exit differently than a regular bullet? What is an irregular bullet? If the move toward the language of domesticity is a lessening, a demoting of sorts, then what is the language of violence about race? An escalation? A shout to the whisper of the domestic? Don't mistake me. I am not advocating here for more whispering. We have all of us been quiet too long at such cost. I am asking for a shift in language that allows us to consider the intersections between these types of violence we hold separate, to consider them not so much as intersections, as places of sharp corners, but rather as places that exist most often in the actual, in the physical, in the soft bodies of our children, of ourselves. Here's the thing about domestic abusers. They don't quarantine themselves. They to and fro. They leave their domiciles at regular intervals. They go to the nightclubs in Orlando. They go to the concert in Las Vegas. They go to the elementary school in Newtown. They go to all places in between. They take down their guns and go. 
and blue whales, beach bums and old chums. Lady Luck, who gives up? My friend dances in the warm wind as sweetness of demeanor is superior to false semblances of convoluted attempts at style. All the while, the church bells in this Christian town Measure the natural ways of the days as all hope to be bound for better times with understanding and glory. Two, three, four. Now don't you fall apart while I'm falling apart. Why don't you get in line behind the tears I'm crying? I know our hearts aren't very smart, but you're gonna have to learn. Learn when it isn't your turn somehow. Don't you lose your mind While I'm looking for mine You're gonna have to stay strong A little longer this time I know our hearts on the cart Baby being blue When it comes to me and you It's always on the menu So sit down Cause I'm gonna be the only one falling apart right now I 
And there you have it. Episode 474 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Judge Abby Abenanti, author Tony Jensen, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, Fat Freddy's Drop, Professor Longhair, Fawnwood, BDT, Wilco, Terence Blanchard, and Brantford Marsalis, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care of yourself and others, too. Toodaloo.